Well, it's a privilege to be back with you in this wonderful place. We're in week three of our sermon series we're calling Vulnerable. Dan began this sermon series with a powerful preaching from Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And in that preaching of Genesis 1 through 3, we find this key moment, this key verse that's happened after the fall of humankind. God said to Adam, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, Lord, I'm over here, but I have been hiding. I've been hiding because I was naked and afraid, and so I fled from you. That's how all of this got started. All this problem we have with sin and the resulting shame that comes to us, that's how it all got started. The next week, Tracy and Pete spoke about the problems we have with the mindset of scarcity and perfectionism. That somehow we get to a place where we think, you know, God's grace just isn't sufficient for all of us. So it must just be given to those who either really, really deserve it or somehow to those that God just particularly likes. And since there's a scarcity of grace, we have to be perfect or at least we have to pretend that we're perfect, even in the family of God, whereby we hide the stuff that of which we really struggles. If you think you have to be perfect, you won't do very well with vulnerability. One of the things I need to mention is that even the title of this message makes me cringe. Shame on you. Why'd we pick that? Well, we don't mean shame on you. I'll go on to talk about that a little bit more. But I also have to make my own confession. Being vulnerable is not exactly the easiest thing for me to do. In case you don't know, and you would have no reason to really know this, but I spent most of my growing up on a cattle ranch in Oklahoma. When you were out on roundups with older guys, it wasn't very often that the cowboys would look at me and say, Billy, how are you doing with vulnerability? (laughs) It was kind of a rugged world. It was a world I was actually very glad to leave when we finally moved to the city in high school. But the point was, and the point is for me, vulnerability is a challenge for a lot of us. And so if even the topic puts you off at something of a distance, those of us who grew up in an environment of rugged individualism get that. It's also something worth at least partially getting over. First thing we need to do to define what we're talking about is to to define the word shame. One of my favorite authors on this subject was a professor that I had at Fuller Seminary named Lewis Smedes, now deceased. Lewis Smedes wrote wonderful books on all kinds of subjects. But here's how in his book called Shame and Grace, he defines what we're talking about when we're mentioning the word shame. He describes shame as the persistent feeling that we are not acceptable, that we are maybe unworthy and less, less than the good person we're supposed to be. Further, he says, shame can be described as the vague undefined heaviness that presses on our spirit, dampens our gratitude for the goodness of life, 
and slackens the free flow of joy. Maybe by those definitions, we can find ourselves something in the place of perhaps I'm carrying some shame. In Dan's original message, he painted the distinction between guilt and shame. And I want to make that part clear too. guilt, guilt, which is something that comes on us. Usually when we've done something wrong that needs mending, it can be a good thing. It can be an indicator that we've done something specifically wrong. We need to amend our ways. We need to get right with God and with those around us. Shame can't be dealt with so simply. The problem with shame is once it's been there so long for us that unlike guilt where we can admit our mistake and move on, when shame takes its deep root, people believe that they don't make mistakes but that they are mistakes. That's shame. Listen for a moment to the following statements, again from Lewis Smedes, and see if they resonate with you in any kind of a way. The first one, I sometimes feel like a fake. When I look inside myself, I seldom feel as if I'm up to what's expected of me. Another one, I feel inferior to the really good people I know. Maybe you're in church and you feel that way about the people you attend church with. I feel inferior to the really good church people that I know. Or the last one. I feel as if I just can't measure up to what I ought to be. No matter what I try to do, I just don't feel like I can measure up. There are a very few times... But there are a few times when we ought to seriously consider feeling shame. And shame can be felt when we've done something intrinsically evil. And that's an appropriate response to having done something intrinsically evil. But that's not the issue for most of us. Most of the stuff we do is not so intrinsically evil that it's terribly, terribly destructive. But I will say one thing for sure. If we've ever used the phrase, shame on you to tell another person about something they've done wrong, let's make a commitment to trying to find a different way to to solve the problem. Because shaming people ought to be removed from our phrase book. One of three things happen when we're dealing with feelings of shame and we don't deal them helpfully or correctly. What happens when we're dealing with our shame, especially in the projects, in in the context, I should say, of the community of faith, What we'll do is the first thing we'll do is we'll just run. We'll come in contact with the community of faith and then we'll discover that it just doesn't feel safe to us to talk to someone about our issues and we will simply run. Sometimes, secondly, we'll kind of root into the community and be a part of it, but we'll hide that part of us so that our perfectionism again takes hold and it becomes the mantra by which we live our lives that no one will know about us. And the third thing is the, probably the worst result is that when we have shame, our tendency for some of us is to lash out at other people, to blame them, to become uh, somebody who's very critical of those around us. Well, that's probably sufficient psychology on this question. 
The question before us this morning is, what does the Bible have to say about shame, and what do we do about it? One of the passages in Jesus' life is told in the Gospels. It comes to us from John chapter 4. I won't read it because I know at least twice in the last year we have dealt with the story from the sermons on the, on the woman at the well, this fabulous story of the woman at the well. The story goes like this. Jesus is passing through Samaria. It's sort of a shortcut to where he needs to go. Otherwise, religious Jewish leaders, rabbis wouldn't have passed through Samaria because it was a despised place in the religious world. Jesus is passing through Samaria. He comes to a little village in a place called Jacob's Well. He's very thirsty. It's the hottest part of the day. He's been traveling. And so he comes to Jacob's Well. He pauses. He rests. He no doubt received water from that well and enjoyed the moment of refreshment. It was there he discovered and encountered a Samaritan woman who was also there to draw water. But the odd part about it is no one else in the village, none of the other women in the village who typically did the chore of drawing the water would have come in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. Here's a woman, as we discover in the context of the story with Jesus, who has a past. She's a a story of someone with a deeply rooted sense of shame. And she comes to the well in the middle of the day because that's when other people are not there. She comes there to avoid those people who will continue to shame her. A woman in that patriarchal society was known for two things. Two things they had to be able to do. They had to meet the standard of fidelity and they had to meet the standard of fertility. We know by the conversation Jesus has with this woman that she didn't meet the standard of fidelity. Jesus tells her that she's had multiple husbands and the man she's living with currently is not her husband. He knows this. He challenges her on it. And she's amazed that that he knows her story. Her fertility, we don't know, but that may have been missing in her life. We don't know fully that part of the story. We can surmise, though, that her sense of failure, of shame, was clearly so pronounced that she was at the well at a time when she wouldn't have to face those people who have added to her shame over and over again. What we know from the story, what we know from this account, is that as a result from her, of her conversation with Jesus, where she transparently reveals the story of her life as he brings it out of her, that she didn't feel like she had to hide any longer. The hiding was done. In fact, the text tells us the next thing she did was to go run and tell. Go, instead of running away, she goes to the townspeople to tell them this conversation that she'd had with this man named Jesus, whom she then challenges them saying, I think he's the Messiah. I think he's the one. And this is a woman whose life has been redeemed and changed and transformed. Well, it's not hard to see what I'm driving at here. What I think we've got to begin to do in the life of the church is to match our theology of sin and shame with our understanding of Scripture's understanding of what God has done with our sin and our shame. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me paraphrase it, say it one more time. God made him who had no sin and no shame to become sin and shame for us so that in him we might be free of shame and sin and know the righteousness of God. When we encounter Jesus, when we embrace his love for us, what we have happen is that our sin and our shame is taken away. Now, I'll quickly go on to say, we don't always feel that. We frequently go back to the notion that there's something to be shamed about us. But in fact, according to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.21, our sin and our shame has been taken away. This Jesus who was mocked and despised and shamed emotionally and physically, stripped nearly naked, abandoned, insulted, beaten. He experienced in those moments every possible human emotion, every possible human emotion. And he took that emotion. He took that pain. He took that sense of shame. And he placed it on his shoulders along with that heavy crossbeam. And he took it to the cross with him. And there it was remedied for all time for us. Our sin and our shame has been taken away. It was all placed on his shoulders so that we would no longer be held captive to the sin of our Lives and to the emotions that somehow otherwise could never have been healed. They have been healed. Our task is to experience that healing. The writer of Hebrews calls us to a remedy for our ongoing struggles with remembering the sins and the pain that God has already forgotten. You do know that. Our sin, our shame, That's already been wiped clean from God's memory. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we hear these words. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. The writer of Hebrews is comparing this As a race, this life we live, it's like a race. Hopefully it's a long race, but however long you run it, there's are going to be challenges. It's not always easy. He mentions in this text 
that we should lay aside every weight that slows us down. Sin, shame, those are just weights that slow us down. You know, last month we celebrated in our church's life that there were a number of people from this church who volunteered to, to run and to raise money to run the Chicago Marathon for World Vision and to raise money for people who don't have clean water in a country far, far away. I think those are really heroic people. Personally, I wonder why anyone wants to run 26.2 miles. I used to be a runner. Anything more than 25.2 miles now, I don't want anything to do with it. But what if we had lined up those runners at the start of the Chicago Marathon, and before the gun went off, we, their church friends, had put some vests on them, and then had taken a pile of weights and just started stuffing them in those vests. And we said, there's an extra 50 pounds, but go ahead and run the race. Good luck to you. We're so proud of you. Hope the race goes well for you. Probably would have made the race impossible. At best, it would have made it really very much more difficult. We wouldn't do that to someone. The writer of Hebrews is saying, why then run the race by putting on a vest with lots of weights in it? Let's lay aside every sin and shame that clings so closely. Let's lay it aside and let's run with perseverance then the race that is set before us. Some of us have a hard time believing that God really would take on his shame. But he did it. And we can live into that. When I was a young pastor, I was a part of a new church planting project and had started a church. And the thing really just took off in surprising ways. We had a great group of people who started the church. We managed to find a nice tract of land that was at a great price. We built an attractive building. We had a good ministry. We had a good thing going on. The best thing we had were people who were very eager to invite their friends to come to church one of our families invited a particular couple to start coming to our church. They came. They seemed to have a good experience. They uh, sat right up here about where you all are here. Every week they came. And they were really kind of eye-catching people. They were dressed to the nines. They just looked like they had life together so well. They just sat there and nodded. They took notes on my sermon. I really love those people. They took notes on my sermon. No, you don't have to do that. We were so glad to have them in the church. I never really got to know them, though. Oh, I would do the handshake with them sometimes at the end of the service. But there was a distance to them. And I, I just sort of wrote that off to that's where the way people respond, especially to new churches. In a new church, if you've come two weeks in a row, you may get asked the third week to be the head of vacation Bible school. <laughs> so you wisely keep your distance. But they had an interesting distance to them. One night, I got a call from the people who had invited them originally to come to our church. She said, well, you're not going to believe this, but Bob will call him. 
is in jail. I got a call from his lawyer whom I know. And Bob said he would like to speak to Bill, me, the pastor, and to come and talk with him. Bill, he's in jail because he's been caught robbing banks. And they finally got him. Wow. They don't really teach you what to say at seminary when you have those kinds of conversations. So I went to the jail. He was way far back in the jail. He was, he was um, not a very popular guy with law enforcement. I later learned that his story had been that he was this calm, polite, attractive guy. At first, he just wrote a note to the teller and said, please give me $2,000. I'd really appreciate it. And it advanced to waving a firearm in the air and threatening people's lives. Thirteen banks he robbed. So I'm prepared to have a conversation with this man. They wouldn't let me in the same room with him. So I'm on the phone and there's a plexiglass screen there. And he's on the other side with his telephone. And for the first, I've got 15 minutes was what they told me. The first five minutes of it is me just listening to this man sobbing. Just sobbing. And the next five minutes, he begins to pour out his story to me. Now, I want to say before I say anything further that he's totally responsible for what he did. This was a wrong thing to do. So what I'm going to say doesn't mitigate against that. He had to pay the price for what he did. I understand that. But for the next five minutes, he told me his story. Bill, we were having financial problems. I didn't feel like I could tell anybody. I didn't feel like I could tell you. I didn't feel like I could tell anybody in the church or anybody that I knew. I was ashamed. Bill, I was also having marital problems, and I I couldn't tell anybody. I couldn't tell anybody that part of my life. I was ashamed. And then after he told me all of that, the end of the call was just him saying over and over again, I feel so ashamed. I just feel so ashamed. Well, I doubt that there are any bank robbers here. So this isn't a a morality play about how you're supposed to behave or I'm not giving those kinds of lessons. But I'll never forget after pondering what he told me, the frustration that welled up within me. What if he was right? What if he had real life issues and real life pain and sin and shame and we were not the kind of community where that could be talked about? What about if in all of our little successes in starting a church, what if we missed that someone could be here and not feel like they could go to a pastor or a trusted friend or a counselor at our recommendation or somebody to say, My life's unraveling. Will you help me? Well, shame blossoms in the dark rooms of our minds. It begins to go away when it's shared with a trusted person. Shame is an emotional sore that always festers when it isn't addressed. One thing I've discovered in my own life is that when I share my struggles honestly with a trusted person, 
I gain a real sense of freedom when I've done it. I've learned that that's true for me. And I know it's true for all of God's people. None of us is holy, holy. Not one of us. I've learned that about God's people too. We still struggle. In 2007, a survey taken by Focus on the Family. And here's the depressing, here's the depressing last part of the sermon. But I want to promise you, after this little depressing part, I'll leave you with hope. It's a promise. In 2007, a study was done of lifestyle choices among active Christian believers. The results showed that just as many believers as non-believers were likely to visit a pornographic website, take something that didn't belong to them, consult a medium or a psychic, physically fight or abuse someone, Consume enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk. Have used an illegal or non-prescriptive drug. Say something to someone that was not true. Or to have gotten back at someone for something he or she did. I've already told you. I'm not one to just bear my soul. But I will tell you this. One thing I've discovered about myself and about people in church. All of us have our stuff. Our lives aren't perfect. Our kids aren't perfect. Our relationships aren't perfect. That's the reality for God's people. And as a result of the things we've done or have been told, this thing called shame gets a grip on us. And we forget, though we teach it a lot, we forget that God has already taken care of all of this of all of us for all of us in the sufferings of Jesus. And furthermore, God has placed us in a community of people from whom we can expect to find support and relief from our fears and our perceived failures. I have two suggestions. Number one, face the fact that you and I don't have it all together. We just don't have it all together. And if we did have it all together, we wouldn't need a savior. So I'm glad we don't have it all together. And second, consider taking just a step toward vulnerability. It's possible that if you shared your story with a trusted person, you might find more freedom and joy than you've ever felt before. Would you pray with me? God, for your word, for the way it addresses our sin and shame by telling us just very frankly, it's been taken care of. Then, Lord, help us to live into the joy of your presence, of your forgiveness, of your great life. Lord, make us vulnerable to what we need to be vulnerable to. For your grace, we give you thanks. In the name of the one, the Lord Jesus, who took our shame away. Amen.